started to read out a list of the childminders who have passed through our life, then a list of my professional accomplishments, then another detailing all my trips abroad, then yet another of all the books I've read since Yusuf had been born, asking the court how a good mother could busy herself with all these things, if not at the expense of her child. It was on the tip of my tongue to say that I had another boy, and he was fine, but I was afraid the court would turn the eye of envy on him and bring him bad luck. He said, She is an absentee mother, your honors. She does not value the blessing God has given her and so mistreats this innocent child that he has attempted to kill himself aged just twelve. It was on the tip of my tongue to say that I was motherless myself, that despite this I'd survived, but that felt, too, that this wouldn't be completely accurate. I haven't survived. What is there to prove that I've survived? I was about to tell him how much I love my children and that I'd given up so much for their sake, but I could tell how ridiculous it would sound. Then, something like inspiration. I began a new defense. I said that he was my double, that we were twins. We both suffered from the same illness and neither of us were able to look into the other's face without recalling their own suffering. Everything I said was honest and true, but I realized I was talking in Arabic and that no one in court could understand me except the Egyptian poet I loathed. That was from How to Mend, Motherhood and Its Ghosts by Amen Mersal, Egyptian a poet and now prose artist, translated by Robin Mosher. Thanks, that was a lovely read. You always read things so nicely. Well, I love them. Well, <laughs> things that I enjoy, things that I hate, probably I don't. So um, this is one of the books we're going to talk about um, today. Uh, this is episode 26 of the Bullock podcast. Uh, I'm Ursula Lindsay. Um, reading to you beautifully is uh, Marsha Links Quayley. And we're uh, back after a pretty long uh, winter hiatus. And so we have lots of books to catch up on. Yes, read lots over the holiday break. Cool. In fact, I, I think both of us actually read this before the break, um, and uh, I, I really liked it. It really yeah. snuck up on me. Yes, me too. I, um, I, before I'd read it, I think I'd been warned, if that's the right word, by some Egyptian friends, I think who um, felt uncomfortable with the personal aspects that she brings into this book about her own family life. Mm. Uh, oh, it's so depressing. Oh, she writes about her own kids. I think that they were uncomfortable with the idea of this kind of confessional literature that you don't really find in Arabic. Um, and, uh, you know, it's certainly not confessional literature in the sense that we would say it in English, but she does bring in her own relationships it, I mean, it's it's certainly autobiographical, and so it's this little book. It's sort of interesting, the format itself. It's literally physically it's small. It's a pocket book, right? Right. You can shove it in your bag, or even if, I suppose, if you had your coat pockets, you can definitely put it in your coat pockets for winter. Yeah, and um, it's her, so she's a poet. Is This, this is perhaps her first this was her first foray into prose. She has now, again, translated prose and written another prose book. So um, I read a you know, work of 
there are some, you know, works of criticism saying, Iman Marcel has shifted into writing prose. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I, she, it feels very much on a continuum with her, with her poetry. Yeah, I mean, her poetry is often prose poetry in the way that we mean that in English and not in the way that we mean that in Arabic. Um, you know, blocks of text small stories with narrative through lines. They're, you know, they're all surprising and with an interesting use of language like you would hope for in poetry, but but they are, you know, text and narrative oriented. So this doesn't at all, and, and many of these are come in tiny blocks or not tiny, but small chunks, blocks, strange images, as you would expect from poetry. Yeah, and she combines a number of different genres in it. So there's there's autobiography. In the beginning, there's there's sort of more this essayistic approach that's quite intellectual, right. where she's actually um, sort of you know unpacking these intellectual and cultural arguments about the definition of motherhood. She has this whole section on a certain kind of photography that's very interesting. Um, and then it's mixed with these more personal, so it kind of moves from, to me, that shift was sort of surprising and quite moving in the sense that it start, I started out thinking that it was more of a kind of intellectual reflection on motherhood. Right. And then it gets very personal, and I, I found that quite moving. Right. And not only very personal in its content, but also in the style, shifting from more essayist format to these tiny journal fragments that make it feel as though, I mean, we obviously don't know if she literally wrote any of these things in a literal journal, but making us feel as though we're peeking into. I think it's implied at the end because she has this note that says, like, thank you to Sonali Ibrahim who suggested that I, that keep, I keep a journal while he while she was three months pregnant. Yeah. So there is this, this suggestion that that's one of the bases of it. Yeah. And these little, like, uh, once in a while she'll have a scene where it's just like an exchange with her son or something that happened to the family at an airport, which very much seems like something you would have jotted down in your journal Right, although some of them feel more crafted. The one I was reading from, which was a dream where she was defending herself, and there was a... An Egyptian poet she couldn't stand, who whenever we'd bump into one another back in Cairo in the 90s, would always say, when are you going to finish your master's? You're really taking your time. Um, you know, that that section felt to me more something that she'd sat down and recrafted. But Well, the whole book, I thought, was is very elegantly edited and put together. Like, it's a personal topic, but it, she has a lot of control over how she's telling this story and you get um you you get some very very personal information but then there's also a lot that's still withheld it's very condensed yes um i mean i was left at the end very much wondering because part of the story is these very serious difficulties that one of her children had wondering what's happened to him you know like right um it's okay she so she chooses how much to share or not and yeah i don't i don't find it confessional in the sense that it's so revealing of of the family life. I, yeah, it's, it's at least as much concealing um, of of her personal life while she's using, of course, her own personal experiences and emotions around them. Yeah, I thought it was very just very beautifully kind of 
put together. And yeah, and I enjoyed both the essay aspects. And I mean, I, I generally am I'm not a person who likes to read about motherhood. Um, I I had well, enough motherhood in my life as it is. I am the one of us who has three children. I, I want my intellectual life to be... I don't even have to think that children exist in the world. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I never read a mommy memoir. I don't, I don't aspire to reading a mommy memoir. I don't even generally like to think about what is motherhood. I feel I've dedicated enough time to it already. Um, but I really enjoyed uh, the, the section on the, uh, the Victorian photography, the hidden mothers, and then also how she layered Yusuf and her own, the ghost of her own mother. Yeah, so I'm thinking about what you said about not wanting to read about motherhood. I don't, see, I don't, I don't feel that way. I mean, I feel you like you only course, have one child. But come on, that's, I mean, certainly the topic could be interesting to people who have none, and we're not going to sort of make it correlate, right? Like, <laughs> like the more yes, no, I probably was never interested in it. But you didn't because because once I had the experience, one, it became more interesting to me, and then two, I feel like it is an intellectually interesting experience. Like that's the thing that she makes so clear is like it is. Um, it is a, a very interesting, like, layered, complicated, like, super intense. I suppose. Not just yeah. bond, not just like, oh, I love it, but like real experience to think about and reflect on and sort of, you know, um, beyond the kind of like cliches. Uh, right. I suppose that's what's frightened me off the genre of mommy literature because there is so much of that and there's so much mommy memoir. I think it was a very successful genre for a while in the publishing industry and it was full of these loving every other minute of it kind of I didn't want to feel any more pressure than I already feel uh, I already am carrying plenty of existential guilt and dread about motherhood she when she says like the defining emotion about motherhood is guilt I feel like I, to I totally related to that or just the feeling that like you're always inadequate that there's an ideal of parenthood. Right. And and you're, what you notice and what you pay attention to are the ways that you don't live up to it rather than the other way around, or like the mistakes that you make. Um, even as you know that, like, one, everybody makes them, two, you're actually doing a fine job. Right. I mean, she's in a... She did say, as long as the child's still alive, and that, you know, that's my mantra. Right. Personally, yeah, I think the well, the famous theory of like the good enough mom or parent is like I totally subscribe to. Right. Although she said this, as long as your child's still alive, in the context of her grandmother's grief over her mother's death, yeah. over the mourning of your of your child. So, I mean, she has a very dramatic set of personal circumstances. I also think like maybe the mommy um, memoir is common like his but I don't think that there's been that many books like this in Arabic nonfiction certainly not uh, where like you said like people are even uncomfortable at the revelation of sort of these personal details or difficulties within mm -hmm. your family um, there's been a lot of writing about the female body in a kind of sexual liberation way mm -hmm. you know they're like all the authors who kind of right try to Just said magazine yeah but I I don't think there's been 
Um, and if it was coming to mind right now is a conversation I had years ago with a couple Egyptian male authors uh, having coffee at the Cairo Book Fair. And I had gone back and I had had my son by then there, and somehow that came up. And then this like unprompted, this male writer told me, started explaining to me the difference between the bond that met fathers feel with their children and mothers feel with their children. And he was like, you know, men have an intellectual bond with their children and women have a physical bond with their children. You know, it was just like the most cliched. Right. You know, he's a writer, you'd think. And he's also like, I have a child. He's le- he's sort of explaining to me what my bond and me and my husband's bond, you know, is apparently my <laughs> um, must be with our with our with our children. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's an area that's ripe for exploration, and particularly this kind of like very nuanced, right, unsentimental. Yes, I think you would say that. Imen has an intellectual bond with her children. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, this. I mean, I feel like when I, I mean, it was one of the things that was very exciting to me. I felt like it wasn't, of course, it's very emotional, of course, it's very physical, but there's also like a lot of, you just think about it, about what's going on with your kid, like what you must have been like, your relationship with your own parents, like it throws you back and forward in time Mm, to have a kid. You suddenly like project like decades into the future, decades into the past. I mean, it's a, it's a whole journey. Of course it's meant. And also, of course, my husband also like physically bonds with our child. (laughs) Like he's not only concerned with him on an intellectual level. It was just so, you know. (laughs) Right. But yes, I think there has been a general discomfort with anything of this type. You know, of course, there's very interesting nonfiction and very interesting nonfiction about the self and about one's own experiences, but about one's family, intimate family, sort of an intimate family portrait, and particularly a woman talking about her children. I can't think of another. And talk about the burden of having a child that has a serious... Right. I mean, Radwa Ashur, of course, writes about Tamim, but only... I can only think of, you know, sort of the adorable things that he did as a child and, you know, him learning about language and music and, you know, interactions with other people. Definitely not, I can't, nothing that I can remember um, that felt anything about difficulties. Mm. Yeah, I mean, anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really neat book and it's part of this series, the Kaifate How-To series, um, from uh, which is an independent uh, publishing initiative. Uh, and uh, there's, I think, about half a dozen of these books mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we previously talked about Haizam Madwardani's How to Disappear, which you can also find in translation by Robin and somebody else whose name I'm forgetting. Was this translated or did she write it in English? This is translated by Robin. And okay. I think it went through many... She, I think the, the crafting of the translation was as careful as the crafting of the original, and it went back and forth between... She teaches in Edmonton, up in Canada somewhere, and I think it went back and forth between her and Robin a number of times. That wouldn't surprise me. 
Um, and then, I mean, by just a complete coincidence, the one of the other books that we want to talk about is also a poet who's moved yes, into yes, prose. Yes, Mezen Marouf, who was first known, he's uh, a Palestinian poet who lived in Beirut and then had to leave Beirut and he became an Icelandic citizen, I believe, and now he's a Palestinian Icelandic uh, poet. Uh, why, writer. if I may ask, do you know why did he have to leave Beirut? Uh, it, the details are kind of escaping me. He was under threat for some reason. Okay. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's a literary critic, <laughs> but I don't think that's... I'm pretty sure that wasn't the reason. That one would hope so. <laughs> it hasn't got that bad. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I can't think of a story in Arabic like, you know, the... You know, somebody going up to bottle another writer, hit, hit them on the head with a bottle, uh, such like that, of for writing a bad review of their work. Um, no, I, so he's, he's also in a journalist, Iceland, but he's now. in Iceland. Well, he's based in Iceland. Okay. Every time I see him, you know, posting on social media, he's right now at the current moment he is doing book events in England for the English launch of Jokes for the Gunman, which is put out by Granta. Yes, it, this book. The collection in in Arabic won the first ever Al-Multaqa Prize for the Arabic short story. I think it's called. Anyway, it's it's a it's the sort of first pan Arab collection uh, prize focused on short story collections, and this was the first ever winner. And I'm pretty sure Jonathan sits on the board of this prize. Sorry, Jonathan Wright. Jonathan Wright, the translator, sits on the board of the prize. So I think he just snapped it right up as soon as he saw it. Oh, to translate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, so he was a, he, he'd worked as a poet until then, and this is a collection of short stories. It um, is a collection of very sort of dreamy, surreal, poetic-ish uh, short stories, yeah. Yeah, they have that actually, but that makes it sound actually a little bit more pleasant than it is in terms of the atmosphere. <laughs> right. No, because you know okay. what I mean. I yes. like the book, but they're dreamy in a in more like the kind of in queasy a creepy quality. Civil war. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's a child's eye, cruel sometimes uh, view of the civil, naively cruel, uh, like you would imagine some idiot manning a barrier uh, during the long civil war in in Beirut. Yeah. Um, so he, I'm, I'm guessing, was a kid during the Civil War. Is yeah. that more or less his age? Right. And, yes. Okay. And so these are, yeah. So these are stories. I mean, I've only, I read uh, the first three, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I like how you kind of don't know where they're going, which is, has that dream quality to it too. Like there's this sort of um, sudden, sort of slightly surreal turns. And even in the language, like he'll say, you know, there was this bombing. And he'll say, of course, my father was a victim of the bombing. So you think he's dead. And then like two paragraphs later, he'll be like, but my father didn't die. Right. So there's a lot of these little twists and turns. Um, Which I think is something um, to me that brings out this atmosphere of war, the utter unpredictability of it. Will you be able to go into work today? Will it be safe today? Will you get hit by a sniper today? I don't know. Just go out there and walk along the street and find out. Yeah, I kind of, I mean, I find it hard to imagine, frankly. Like, I don't think I can really 
I mean, I've never, you know, that that level of in of sort of insecurity, like you say in your daily life, it must change everything. But I've never come close. Like even say, you know, living through I don't know the Arab Spring in Cairo or whatever, where there was a kind of atmosphere of. Right, Un- unpredictability. Unpredictability, you didn't know what was going to happen. Like, uh, you know, I don't know, oh, the helicopter's flying overhead. Like, right. are they with or against the protest? But that's just a, not the same. This is like, this is it's like... 15 years of war. And it's just, in, and that's in the book. It's kind of installed itself as reality. Like, right. this is reality. There's a lot of also, like, father-son stuff. There's mm-hmm. a lot of the relationships between fathers and sons and kind of violence and reputation and sort of this kind of stupid machismo, I would say. Right. I mean, like, deconstructed the, yeah, in a funny I guess way. The, the characters themselves always seem to be the sort of non-ma- non-masculine, but surrounded by this intense masculinity. Yeah, well, I mean, arguably, the truth is in these systems, like, nobody's actually masculine in the right, way that you're right, supposed right, to be. Right. Like, it's always a performance, and everyone is pretending. But, you know, the kid in the first story who um, who 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 competes with the other kids at school to tell stories about how badly his dad beat him up, because if you tell a story about how da- badly your father beat you up, you're showing, like, what a great big manly well, because man otherwise he is. His, his father is, a, is sort of this guy who's pissed upon by everybody else in the neighborhood and who is very low and he's not a, a militia man and right. he's not in the war and so he beats himself up in order to right. show that his dad at least at least can hit his own kid right i mean which is very darkly funny like i right. really thought that was pretty funny i mean yeah the whole book is weird surreally darkly funny even, you know, things like dementia are treated in the book in a very uncomfortably funny way. <laughs> right. He's really on the line. Mm-hmm. He's really on the line sometimes. So that's why sometimes I have a kind of slightly queasy feeling for right. the stories right. because it's like, how far is this going to go? And <laughs> there's also, of course, a lot of actual physical, like, you know, people losing limbs and eyes and, you right. know. He um, wants his father to lose an eye so that right. he can get a glass eye and be scary. Right. Right. Because as as his father stands, his father is not very scary. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy, I'm looking forward to, to reading the rest. Yes. And he has out a second short story collection that's not uh, yet translated, although I imagine it, it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, In Arabic then? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, he maybe has moved away from poetry to writing in prose. I don't know. Of course, it's a more lucrative business, prose. Is it? Well, in terms of translation and international access Well, presumably to that, that's not why he's moved. No, it's I not don't like think a so. business choice. Business decision to move into short stories? No, he should move into confessional novels yeah. if that's what he wants to do. Yeah. What are you thinking of when you're talking about confessional novels? Like, do you have something in mind in particular that yeah, like you? Yeah, uh, like I. <laughs> bugged me no but just you know like um um here i am i'm was an alcoholic here's here's me barfing all over uh, uh myself in a, a work meeting and here's why my mom there's the terrible things my mom did to me have you do you made, read these books no i just imagine them though oh, see, because i've never <laughs> read any of them i don't read them much either so i i have no idea 
if I'm accurately portraying this well, genre. I'm just like not even. Yeah, that's why I asked you. Like, what is what is it? What is this? What is this genre that we're hate imagining? I think I know what you mean. I mean the sort of survivor stories and yeah. a little bit. Although I yeah, I mean I, I'm you know so if people really did survive stuff, I'm not sure how mean we should be about the books they write about it afterwards. Well, we didn't name anybody's name, right. so it's um, not about you, whoever you are. It's not the kind of story that I particularly look for because it's, uh, I mean, they're just terrible stories for the most part. Like, I think there's the sort of, I'm more, the, the sort of voyeuris, voyeurism of sort of wanting to read a story about someone like, I don't know, surviving child abuse or being kidnapped by terrorists or these kinds of things. I more don't find, I mean, I find those stories so upsetting that it's right. not, it's not, it's not, the, it's not the area of the bookstore that I gravitate to. Right. I also am, yeah, I'm less interested in being in the moment. Um, this, this, uh, How to Mend Motherhood and Its Ghosts is interesting to me because she's not writing about being in the moment. She's looking and reflecting on these different relationships. Uh, yeah. yeah, it also does not have a self-help quality no, at all. No. It does not have a kind of, this is what I learned. It is, it is, it is sharp. It right. has a, it has a and there's sharpness not, it's, to there's, it. I think, I, well, you know, not actually having read these books that I'm talking about. I just imagine, you know, that here we're crossing these taboos. We're, you know, telling you about how my, you know, brother peeked in on me in the bathroom when I was 10 and um you have like a really detailed sort of like <laughs> mental nap of these books you don't like that we're not sure are even there they're just sort of the photo negative image of the book you do like <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I have a very vivid imagination for what I don't want to read um <laughs> well um Shall we talk a little bit about the Cairo Book Fair? Which yes, has been which going is going on, on now. It's, uh, as we record, day three of the Cairo International Book Fair. And it is in a totally new location that is out in what's called New Cairo, uh, out like where the new American University in Cairo campus is, off. Oh, it's a bit, it's not entirely off the grid of public transit because. You can get pretty much anywhere if you take enough microbuses. But it's, you know, it was in a location in Nasser City, which, as you say, was already hard enough to get to for some people. But it was like a, it's like a fairground in Nasser yes. City that was built, I don't know when, and it's right. like meant to host big events. I can't right. remember what the place is called. but uh, And I always had uh, a kind of a state fair association with it. Mm. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota. And I had this kind of Minnesota State Fair association with the Cairo Book Fair. And I liked that outdoor, um, insane, uh, semi-trashy aspect to it. I mean, it was sprawling. It was sprawling. It's definitely the biggest book fair in the region, right? Still, uh, in, by number of people who attend? Or? Um, you know, I think uh, Jeddah and Riyadh and uh, a couple of others dispute this. There, there are a number of them that are, are big around too. this sort of two million visitor mark. No, that's true. Saudi Arabia could have, because it has the kind of population where they could have. I've been to the one in um, Riyadh. Okay. And, then, you know, it's also like, they tell the textbooks, it's tons of university. It's more stayed, though, it was my impression. Right. Um, and I remember being inside. I don't think it was outside. But did you used to go every year to the Cairo one? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that 
there are a number of publishers, booksellers, intellectuals who didn't. There are a lot of problems with the Cairo Book Fair. You, you, you would see, oh, this event is supposed to be at 2 p.m. and Sonala Ibrahim is supposed to be speaking in the whatever uh, hall. And you'd go there and it was somebody totally different. And Sonala Ibrahim's event didn't really start until 7 p.m. Or he didn't even show up that day at all and was never told he had an event. Many of the books were open to the elements. Uh, so there was rain damage, particularly because it, you know, takes place at the end of January, beginning of February. Rain, wind, sand damage on some of the books hmm. that are, you know, left outside overnight for 10 days. Um you know, so it's a, it's a big shift to this new indoor location that I haven't seen in person, obviously, but watched a lot of videos <laughs> about. You're you don't you, you're against you're against the media. I, it's I I'm I mean personally you're skeptical. Per, I'm say. skeptical, and and personally, I really enjoyed the old I, people who've been reacting to me. I've gotten probably fifty percent. Finally, we're moving into the 20th century with our book fair. And, uh, oh, my God, they've uh, commercialized and destroyed it. It looks it's soulless here. Um, I'm glad the used booksellers didn't come here to this horror show. So because that's the other thing, like the there usually there was a section of the book fair that where used booksellers also participated. And this year they haven't been given any space to participate at all. They used to have a large space. I don't know how many meters. And anyway, I, my brain doesn't work that way. But they were given, they were offered a much smaller space at a higher price point per meter. Oh, and so they, they chose said, not to go? They said either all of us or none of us. I mean, I think they would have had to make a decision about who gets to go and who doesn't. And I think they decided they'll just stay downtown and do their own rival book fair, which runs between January 15th and February 15th. So it was their, yes, it was ultimately their decision. Um, they're using more of the, it, the floor space in general is smaller at this new location. And they're using... And probably more expensive, it And it's like. more expensive. Saudi Arabia has the largest, had, has bought out the largest space, um, which I can't remember how many publishers they brought in. I mean, as I remember, the majority of the books that they have are religious books. I mean, they have textbooks, but it's not like there's a large um, and, and some, some academic work. But it, it's a lot of books about religion. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've they used to have a building at the old fairgrounds. Yeah, yeah, they used to have a kind of warehouse. Right, and yeah, I would go in there, walk in quickly, and walk out just as quickly. Yeah, I mean, so... Maybe they were sometimes giving away little flags and gugas and things, and I I was I like to gather freebies at the fair as well. I like to just take a look, because the thing is, like, I'll maybe link... I wrote something about it, like, in 2014, maybe, because mm. I just felt it was kind of like an interesting place to kind of just take the temperature, like, that sometimes there would be... Sometimes something would happen where, like... You know, under Mubarak, you know, uh, some prominent intellectual would like say something to him and get in trouble for right, it. Right. Or at the at the sort of because they organize a lot of kind of talks and things on the sidelines. Like, you know, somebody would happen. There would always be some book that would be banned. Yeah, um, they used he used to meet with the intellectuals right. before the fair. 
Right. He used to always have these 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 meetings with them. Um, and uh, and there was always some funny business with the cafe. Uh, it was it shut down one year because too many people gather there and have these sort of naughty discussions about overthrowing the regime. And then they changed the hours and made it really strange. I mean, because it is a big space, a big sort of public gathering, and because it is related to sort of literature and ideas and things like that, although it has also this, you know, most of the people there, they're looking for, like, cheap textbooks or... Yeah, 99% of the people who I was following to watch their little videos and see their photos Uh were there trolling for deals. And there are still deals to be had, absolutely. But I imagine that this new space is much more controllable. Right. I mean, the thing is... Uh, well, first I'll tell you the story about the first time I went to the Cairo Book Fair, which was like the first year I was in Cairo, so I didn't speak good Arabic at all. And Nasser City is, is it was, it was a, you know, Cairo's big. And so this fairground that we're talking about is in a suburb of Cairo that was, you know, has been around since the 60s, but was far from where I was living. And I don't think I'd ever been there. And I got into the, a taxi and then, like, didn't know how to say fair. Mm. And so I remember asking to go to the Haflet al-Kitab. But we figured it out. We figured right. it out eventually. Um, and I remember being completely overwhelmed by the scene over there. Like, it was just, you know, it's it's enormous. There's tons of people. It just goes on and on. And then going back with people was more interesting because if you go with people who like my Arabic tutor who was one of the most cultivated people I've ever met he had been going for so many years he like knew all the places he wanted to go the publishers and stuff and then he sort of tell you the books he'd bought and it would be really really interesting I think this the move like it's hard to tell without being there my my probably main concern would be like what is the transportation like, like they do have buses, a, a number of buses taking people out to the fair. And I looked, and there are photographs of long lines outside the fair of people trying to get in to get the oh to go to, to get no, inside. I'm, I'm sure people are going to the fair. I mean, but you know, Cairo's a really big city. Like, how big is this network of buses? I'm right. just that would be a big question for me. Like, I, but maybe maybe there's the same kind of shared taxi. You, pe- people are getting there okay. I think the other thing that we're you know, I, I share your skepticism a little bit, is that already when I went in 2014, they had like shut down all the discussions on the side, like it was all sort of like, you know, dull propaganda, you know, where nobody was going right. to be able to have, you know, say anything like it was the first, you know, the first year after I think Sisi had been elected. So it was very, you know, controlled. And um, and generally speaking, there's this like te- you know, the 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 regime's definition of what is modern and looks good is like so lame. Right. That's the problem. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know if you saw there's like this recent announcement about how um, you know I think they said the president. I don't know if it's I didn't I don't know if it's really him, but that they're they're they've just said like oh all the red brick buildings like they look so terrible we're gonna have people paint them all they're all gonna have to be uniformly painted you know because like it just looks shabby you know i mean like first of all somebody's cousin is currently like buying a paint factory like (laughs) 
And 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 also, you know, I loved those, but like people always had everybody would paint their own balcony, so mm-hmm. you'd drive by. Yes. And they would do those the, are lovely. They do like murals or they do these like crazy geometric patterns over the building, like really dramatic, like yeah. purple lozenges and stuff and like glitter paint and it was cool. Or they do, you know, and then they'd always have the patterns with the bricks to sort of spell out usually like a little religious thing. And it was such a, it's such a, it's like people have no aesthetic sense whatsoever. Well, also the possibility that you could turn Cairo uniformly into one aesthetic. And that's the aesthetic a is going to be crappy. Like it's going to, that's the problem. It's like they wouldn't know like grace or charm if it like bit them in the ass like they just have no so you know the the idea that they're gonna I mean, maybe the fairgrounds are absolutely fine and they just looks a little bit more like all the international book for it does, fairs the and it's inside and do it's look, fine do look just very much like a standard international book fair you know there are some silly aspects to it like a gigantic area set aside or what looks in the photographs gigantic area set aside for egypt air airplane chairs uh, but you're not allowed to go and sit on them so it's just sort of this taking up this big space with what looks like sort of the interior of an airplane I mean there's so many cool things you could do at a book fair but of course they won't do them like I mean there should be like play areas for kids so that people can bring their kids to look for books but they can also let them play a little bit while they're there like just I mean there's so many you know and there should be of course you know panels and movie screenings and all this kind of stuff truth is most book fairs I find a little you know it's not the most stimulating place sometimes to be you're sort of wandering around the endless you know stalls and pavilions and stuff and it's sort of a little I did like the outdoor aspect of the old Cairo book fair because then you just feel a little bit more I I do enjoy the Sharjah and Abu Dhabi fairs but I would it would be great if it had a a, outdoor component you know a more of a I don't know world's fair kind of element to it yeah. Anyway, and we'll see if like any news comes out of this one. Like I, don't I haven't know heard any it, drama yet. I don't. I don't think there's going to be drama. <laughs> I don't think that that is gonna is. For a while, there was. I mean, in the to the end of the Mubarak era, and then the immediate post Mubarak era. Sure. There was a lot of drama every year with with the book fair. But yeah, yeah. I guess I'm not expecting much of interest in in that aspect this year. Yeah, no, I, I I suspect not. I mean, like, they're so tightly sort of patrolling all, you know, ga- gatherings, like you say, and sort of forums in which in which people might discuss things. Um, yeah, no, the ones that I've seen are in these kind of conference room environments with a conference table and people sitting around a conference table. Frankly, you couldn't pay me enough to sit through most of these things. Right, they, the people look like they're... <laughs> You know, the, from the videos, even the ones produced by the official fair, you know, people are half asleep, rolling their eyes. Uh. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of connected to that, I went to something last night. I went to um, a little presentation of a book, which mm-hmm. was, you know, very, very informal. And so not at all this kind of like a, a formal panel right, discussion. Right. Um, it was, it's, so there's this book, uh, it's in French called, uh, Casablanca ni d'artiste. So Casablanca, a nest of artists, but I think the expression works better in French. It's sort of like refuge of artists right. or home to artists. I don't know. 
And it's edited by a friend of ours, uh, uh, Kenza Sefriwi. And, and originally the project had been begun by the Moroccan novelist Leila Slimani. And so what it is is like, I mean, it's this beautiful, thick coffee table book that we've got here in front of us. Um, it's a sort of compilation of interviews with all these different artists that live in Casablanca in all these different mediums. Mm. And then um, Kenza kind of pulls out of each interview like one or two key words. So each page kind of gives you that person's like a one or two, and it's actually done in the font too. So mm. so the layout, some some words are oh, bigger wow, than others. It's lovely. And so it gives you kind of the emotion. She says it wanted to give sort of the num the top emotions that this artist feels like from the city or from their work on the city. And mm. also then because a lot of it is with photographers and painters, like they got the rights to reproduce their work or there's small texts from the writers. It's a really nice. I think it's a very nice reference. Of course, it's done with like funding from a bank so that you could have the money to do <laughs> such a nice book. Right. I mean, this looks like it must have been outrageously expensive. I mean, it, it, so it costs about $50 is what they're selling it for. Okay. It's 480 dirhams. Right. But even that is already with the um, right um, su- of- subsidy, yeah, I think, of the, of the bank. Uh, but so interestingly enough, so I'll tell you one thing about this book that I think is very interesting. So the cover picture, you see uh, this like uh, rear view mirror of a car and palm trees behind. The original picture is somewhere inside. And in the original picture, in the rear view mirror, mm. there's a cart. Uh, okay. And on the cover, they decided that that didn't look good enough. And so they blurred it out, which makes it a more boring photograph. Right. And is this like unnecessary act of last minute censorship because it would have made Casa? Oh, here's the original. Oh, it would have made Casablanca. It's a sort of a tuk tuky. It's a tuk tuk right. scene in the rearview mirror of a car along the, the Casa Corniche. Right. So instead of this kind of complex image, it becomes just this kind of, it could be anywhere. It, does it could kind be of Los look Angeles. LA, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so. And this was, I think, done at the last minute by the publishers and the editor. Um, But so, you know, very similar to, it made me think immediately of Egypt, where also there are like certain certain kinds of images that people are like super sensitive about. And then when I started out in journalism there like over 15 years ago, I think the magazine, because of it had been censored once because of this, had a like no donkeys rule. Right. No donkeys on the cover rule. Because donkeys were sort of like the rural and the poor and the, you know, and so and so the, the authorities had censored us for having one. And so then we had this rule which sort of stood in more generally for like, be aware of this sensitivity that there is to the image. And it's the same thing here. But, it, you know, I think completely unnecessarily erases... The individual character of Casablanca. Right. I mean, I don't think, you know, you can imagine a scenario in which imagery is used in order to show how backwards a city is and to work in in this sort of very orientalist narrative. Oh, I would go so far as to even say, I don't think having a a tuk-tuk cart in the rearview mirror of a car is a particularly original juxtaposition. I think it is playing a little bit on that sort of like modern, traditional dichotomy. And frankly, it's, it's not brilliant right it's a little bit like the satellite dish on top of the 
you know, basic, like right. slum, for lack of a better word. Um, so I think, so, sorry to interrupt, but that's no, where no, you were no, going. No, yes, that was where I was going, yeah. So, but I don't think it was offensive. Like, I don't think it was to the degree of being, I think it was just no, a little obvious. I don't think it not. was like, no. uh, uh, it, they can't, people can be offensive, I also remember doing a story once about the informal neighborhoods in Cairo, and people were so sensitive about how their neighborhoods were portrayed. And I remember talking about it with my editor and putting it in the story, and then they ran it with a picture of, like, children playing in the mud. And I was like, oh, seriously? <laughs> like, you know, I can't take this article back and show it to them. Right. Because of the picture that you put on it. Like, I'm sure there's a photo we could have used that would have been less... Yeah. Like... <laughs> You right. know, exactly the image that people are worried. Right. Well, it, it, the, the image does a lot of work in terms of, yeah, crafting the overall idea that the text is never going to be able to work against. Right. Right. I mean, that said, I think, like, in this case, just as a publisher, like, I, I would not mess with somebody's picture like that. I would either use it or don't switch to something else like it's just a little i i'm more bothered by the sen- by the right 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 by yeah the no in this in this instance with the photo i don't know but it does make the cover look like some like hot fun sort of tourist poster e photograph of casablanca yeah i mean i would say overall that the vibe of the book from the ones i've dipped into is like is positive in the sense that, like, of course, the artists who live and work in Casablanca love their city. Mm-hmm. Like, even when they're complaining about it, even, you know, but there is a lot of also, comp- like, there is complaining and there is talking about how tough it is. But people who are generally, you know, even if they find their city very difficult, they're going to be attached to it. And that sure. comes through. So overall, it's quite an ode to Casablanca and to how, like... Well, and that's lovely, actually, because Casablanca, you know, takes a lot of shit, generally speaking... At least within Morocco. Within Morocco, yeah. No, I, I suppose Americans think of Casablanca in the lens through the lens of a single film. I think so too. I think people don't know that much about it otherwise. Right. And it's not a tourism city in Morocco, right? No. It's not like Marrakesh or Tangier. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it's neat, and I think that it is the most culturally vibrant city in the country. And so it's really interesting to highlight that. So I think it's a very neat initiative. But then the conversation around the book became a, a general one. So we were in this little um, sort of association center here in Rabat that does some cultural stuff and some development stuff and that wants to start hosting a book series. So there are about 20 people there. Um, and the conversation became about the cultural scene in Morocco generally. So one, how bad is censorship? Mm-hmm. Uh, to like, why doesn't the government do better things to support culture? Um, and where, you know, I would say the vast majority of people in the room are generally of the view that like there is some pretty heavy-handed censorship. I mean, there was a case of street musicians were arrested mm-hmm. several months ago, um, and that the state does not do enough to support the arts. But you had a few countervailing voices too. Uh, but then uh, what came up also was we're talking about it is this case that's is there's a cultural NGO that's very important in Morocco um, that Kenza knows and I know a lot of people know that has just recently after they've been around for 10 years they were just ordered dissolved last month 
And this is this organization called Hassin, and they're based in Casablanca. They've done tons of activism in Casablanca. They've done like really, really amazing projects. And because they hosted um, in their offices this like YouTube show that's a kind of informal chat show, like roundtable. Mm-hmm. It's called Un Dîner Deux Cons, mm-hmm. so One Dinner, Two Idiots. And they talk about stuff, and they talk about politics, and they're drinking beer. Mm-hmm. They got sued for hosting a political event in their premises. When and, they don't have a license for that sort of thing? Well, it goes against the, st- the statute of the organization as cultural activity, right. right? So they were so even though they didn't organize the event, they just let them use their right. their location. They were the accusation is that they organized a political event even though their statute is to be a cultural organization and that with and then also that during this political event people like, you know, insulted the states and went against public morals and because people talked about I mean exactly the kind of thing you talk about with people normally like corruption you know the Ministry of Interior is corrupt or uh, mm-hmm. this is a police state like it's a bunch of artists and activists and stuff right nothing frankly sh- I don't find particularly shocking what maybe was a big mistake was that they drank beer right on camera while they're chatting mm-hmm and so now it looks like well, it's this really sort of like very important cultural organization may be dissolved. And that's the end of it. I mean, can they reconstitute in a different, with a different name and a different... But yeah, presumably. Right now they're appealing. Right. They're appealing the decision. But frankly, like it doesn't... I, I don't know if what, the, what the chances are. I mean... And also, so say the accusations were true, which I don't think they really stand up, like the, that they organized a political event. The consequence is to, is to dissolve. It's not like a fine. Or right. It's like dissolve the organization. Like it's so clearly they're being targeted. You know, someone's taking the opportunity. They sort of made a mistake, made a minor mistake, and someone's taking the opportunity to get rid of them. They do, like, cultural activities all across the country. They, like, lobby for, you know, public policies that, like, help young people, like, access to cultural spaces and stuff. It's just so wrongheaded to get rid of somewhere like that. And they're generally not very political. Like, they're careful. Right. So anyway, so then that sort of became what we all talked about a lot because we're reading this book about like artists in the biggest city in the country. And then in this environment where there's like just no support for the arts and then everybody's sort of asking, well, why is that, you know? And did people have some kind of, I mean, arts is a difficult one to support maybe in most environments because, it you know, it's not a productive part of society well but i mean i so here people so i think uh, france is a much closer model than other countries and for example france has like a pretty serious state support for for cultural activity and like a lot of so morocco in a way was set up in a very similar system there's all these like youth centers and cultural centers around the country and they just sit they're they're empty Mm -hmm. they're like empty like nobody uses them because there's no budget is put towards like actually running programs in them. 
but the physical facilities are there. And then like every time somebody private, you know, opens up a space and stuff, it gets it gets used like a ton. It right. becomes super popular. So the demand is clearly there. I mean, if I had to say, I mean, why, why don't they support it? Because they're nervous about people gathering. Mm. They're nervous about people talking. You know, and as Kenza said, like artists, generally speaking, don't have their tongue in their pockets. Like mm. they're going to say, you know, they tend to be the kind of people who are going to be like more critical, more outspoken, you know. Right. Versus a Chamber of Commerce meeting. Right. So why give these, you know, shitsters a platform? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Why give them a pot? Why encourage actually? them? Right. Why encourage them? I think, I mean, I have to guess that that's the... But then people wonder about like why you know, why people, why there's like so little creativity or why people aren't open-minded or Um, people aren't educated or why, why this, you know, intolerant strain of Islam is, you know, spreading and not to like make it super simple. It's not like, you know, if you give people dance classes, they won't radicalize. Like it's not, you know what I mean? There's no like, but if you give people, you know, a variety of interesting community cultural activities, I do think that's like enriching Rather than just, like, everybody watching television, you know, like, it's just... Right, well, I did see a study in the United States that said if kids have after-school activities, teen pregnancy goes down. So, you know, sometimes there can be a simple answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and so that's one of the things that this organization did. They did all these studies, and they kind of tried to quantify, like, what is there... Mm -hmm. You know, how much do people, how much time do people spend in Morocco? How much money do they spend? How much access do they have to then sort of have public policies on these issues? Right. Um, so, because unfortunately, sort of the ethos of Casa, and it comes out in the book, is like basically you have all these like really great creative people who are like scrambling, you know what I mean? Right. And kind of they're getting a sort of energy and edge from the scramble because that's kind of the the ethos of the city, but like there could probably be a thousand times more of them if, if, if there were more chances, like, you know, because there would still be a scramble and there would still be a scramble. They all be scrambling against each other competitively and it'd still be fine. Yeah. It's not like we need to light the spire by giving like (laughs) zero support to the art. (laughs) Make their lives as hard as possible <laughs> for their art. No. Um, so anyway, I thought that discussion was was fairly interesting. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so I think. Oh, are we going to end with a reading? Did sure. you want to read something from here? Um, okay. So should I? Should we? Yeah. Why not? Let's go okay. out on a. Let's go out on something. So. Um, yes, this is from Mezen's book, Jokes for the Gunman, and. I chose something that's illustrative of jokes for the gunman. I must admit that the jokes were not good. At least, they didn't make me laugh. Although I helped make them up, I didn't get most of them. My father, on the other hand, thought they fit the bill. He would smile with relief whenever we finished making up a joke. It was as if the day was done and he could rip that page off the wall calendar. Sometimes we'd spend the whole night making up a funny story, and sometimes we'd have to wake up early, sit together at the kitchen table and confer in whispers as we tried to work out the punchline to a joke that needed one. Sometimes I'd turn to the other school kids for help. I'd ask them to tell me a joke that would make people laugh, make them laugh big time, and they'd come up with one out of sympathy, believing that I urgently needed cheering up because I'd lost my twin brother. 
They would tell me the latest jokes they'd heard and I would pass them on to my father in the evening. Then we'd start adjusting them to make sure they were quite new and had never been heard before. But whenever we finished making up a joke, I noticed that my father looked older. My father said that sometimes he had to tell the joke while the gunman had the radio on, and when the news came on, they would say, shh, and my father would stop, wait till the end of the bulletin, and then tell the joke again from the beginning. As soon as he got a detail of the joke wrong, he'd get a slap on the face, and one of them would say, that's not exactly what you said the first time. When the joke was over, they'd remind him that they were like brothers to him, and if he needed anything, he'd come to see them, since they were there to protect us and help us. But I knew they were lying. If they really wanted to protect him, why hadn't they poked his eye out yet, I wondered. They must have realized that if my father had a glass eye fitted, he would frighten them. Total child logic there. Yes. But also something very sad. I mean, this, this, this being forced to tell jokes to the gunman. Right. Well, his father is pretty low down on the totem pole, I think, in the neighborhood. It's like those scenes in, like, old westerns where someone has to dance or get shot right. well, at. Well, it is a bit court jestery in yeah. general. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we're going to wrap it up here today, and then, you know, we still have, like, an enormous pile of books to get through on the next episode. Yeah, many things that we've (laughs) read and loved in the last few weeks. Yeah. All right, um, well, goodbye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.